Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast Series. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in PwC's National Office and your host. Today, I'm happy to welcome Suzanne Stefani to the studio to talk about the statement of cash flows. This is an important statement because many financial statement users make it a key part of their analysis when evaluating a company's performance for either investing or lending decisions. However, inappropriate classification of cash flows and the treatment of non-cash items continue to be a frequent source of financial statement restatement. So we thought it was a great time to get Suzanne into the studio. So Suzanne, thanks for joining me. So before we dive into the basics, Suzanne, can you just start first with the general classification model? And it's sort of interesting to me if you think about the, the fact that the cash flow statement has so many restatements, because in fact, there's really only sort of four categories you can possibly have, mm-hmm. either operating, mm-hmm. financing, investing, or non-cash, and yet we continue to see issues. So yes. can you just start things off and remind our listeners how you figure out what goes in each of the three categories, and I know we'll talk about non-cash mm-hmm. later. Sure, so when you have a cash flow to classify, you kind of think about it like a waterfall. First, I would think about investing. So those are cash flows when a company invests funds, like when they buy equity securities of another company, or when they buy PP&E or even acquire a business. So if the cash flow isn't investing, then I would think about financing. So those are usually cash flows associated with raising capital like debt or equity. And then if not financing, then you default to operating. It's kind of like a catch-all bucket for everything else, but it's usually things that impact net income like interest, general expenses, inventory, sales, stuff like that. So there's two ways to show operating cash flows. There's the direct method or the indirect method. So what's important to remember is either way it's done, you get the same operating cash flow number at the end. It's just a difference on how the numbers arrived at on the face of the cash flow statement. Most companies, almost everyone I see, uses the indirect method. For the indirect method, basically it starts with net income, then backs out any non-cash amounts that go through net income like depreciation or amortization. And then there's adjustments for changes in accruals and operating assets and liabilities like changes in AR or changes in AP. So really, it's kind of, if you think about it, it's essentially stripping out all the non-cash amounts out of net income. Oftentimes it's really thought of as the cash version of net income, the operating cash flow number. And Suzanne, I think this is exactly why the cash flow statement gets so much attention from users because it really helps them understand as it says, exactly how much cash companies' operations are generating. And Suzanne, I know that you've been involved in some of our discussions that we've had with various investors and analysts through our investor engagement program. And when you talk to them, what do you hear about how they focus on the cash flow statement and maybe in particular the operating section? Yeah, we heard from quite a few investors and analysts that they really do focus on operating cash flows, like you said. And they use a couple of key metrics. So one that they mentioned quite a bit that they look at when they're kind of evaluating a company is free cash flow. So free cash flow is operating cash flows, less cash paid for capital expenditures. So when that number is positive, that's a good thing. Yes. It means the company is generating more cash than it uses to run and grow the business. So stakeholders look at that as a way to assess a company's ability to repay debt and and pay dividends. So that's a key one there that they use. Another thing they use it for is they use it as an assessment of earnings growth. So when investors and analysts see earnings grow in the P&L or or in some sort of non-GAAP measure, but 
they look at the operating cash flows and that's not growing in the same way or on the same trend, sometimes it causes them to dig in to ask the question why that is. So of course it's never gonna be the same, right? Because one's accrual and, and one's cash. But when the trend of growth seems a little bit off, it causes them to look hard at the differences between operating cash flows and, the, and you know, the P&L earnings or, or something that's a non-GAAP. And so they put some scrutiny over it. So with that in mind, some mentioned that when the indirect method is used for the operating cash flows, it's difficult sometimes for them to understand what transactions actually are impacting operating cash flows. So they mentioned it would be helpful for companies to kind of put more disclosure around that when there's a significant or unusual transaction and, and actually disclose where it's reflected in the cash flow statement just to help them with their analysis. So Suzanne, just to pause you there then, it seems like one of the things investors are looking for is are the differences between the income statement and the cash flow statement because of timing? So mm -hmm. you had a big contract, you haven't gotten paid yet, or is it because of some transaction that's maybe non-cash for a long period mm -hmm. or other non-cash adjustments that are hitting the cash flow statement? And that's where I guess this commentary could really help with right. that. And then one other thing they said, well, they use it for a lot of things, but um, that we heard a, a couple of people mention that they use it for when they're looking at a company and they're trying to compare it to that company's peers, like in the same industry group, they'll use operating cash flows. Because again, since operating cash flows is kind of like the cash version of net income, it, it strips out impacts of estimates or if companies make different accounting policy elections and things like that, that all gets stripped away when you're just looking at cash. So that is another way they really like to look at operating cash flows. Okay, good, helpful. So then Suzanne, let's turn to some specific areas where we tend to get a lot of questions mm -hmm. on the cash flow statement. And this first one sort of made me laugh when you and I were preparing because <laughs> the first question is, how to identify your cash and cash equivalents, which is obviously very fundamental when you're talking about yeah. the cash flow uh -huh. statement. And so I know, well, it can be obvious that you have cash sitting in the bank, that mm -hmm. obviously should be included, but I know that in some cases there can actually be questions about what is cash and cash equivalents and what isn't. So mm -hmm. can you give us some examples of what companies should think about? Yeah, so I know it seems like a really simple question, but it's not always straightforward. So. Just a reminder, right, on the cash flow statement, you're reconciling changes in cash and cash equivalents and restricted cash and cash equivalents um, for the period. But it's not so simple as just going to the balance sheet and finding the beginning balance and, and ending balance of cash, and that's the number you're trying to get to. And that's because in some cases, for some companies, they'll put cash and cash equivalents in multiple line items on the balance sheet. For example, it might be in other assets or it might be an investment. So one thing you know we see sometimes is a company might have cash deposits that are held for customers or amounts in escrow. They might have them in other assets on the balance sheet because they're not cash amounts that are able to be used for current operations. So they might even be restricted cash. And so some companies don't put them right in that cash line on the balance sheet. And then the issue is that since the accounts aren't sitting right in the cash line on the balance sheet, they might get overlooked when doing the cash flow statement. And then that problem is the changes in those accounts get left off the cash flow statement. And this issue really got highlighted a few years ago 
when the restricted cash guidance came out, companies had to start showing the changes in restricted cash as well. They had to kind of go through an exercise to really look for those accounts. Yeah, so Suzanne, it's interesting if I reflect back on my days as an audit partner uh -huh. and reviewing that proof of the cash flow statement that uh -huh. a lot of people use, your proof might look okay, but those amounts are actually winding up someplace else. Yeah. So it really is important to understand the detail of what's in these different accounts before you get into preparation of the cash flow statement. Yep, exactly. And then another area, sometimes not so straightforward, is when you have cash equivalents. Again, that's something that might not be sitting in the normal cash line on the balance sheet, might be in something like investments, right? So just as a reminder, cash equivalents are instruments that are short term. So they would have an original maturity of three months or less when purchased by the investor and they're highly liquid. So they're readily convertible to cash. So some common ones would be treasury bills, commercial paper, money market funds. So again, sometimes these may also get overlooked if you, you know, maybe you get a new cash equivalent, someone puts it in the investments line on the balance sheet, maybe someone else is doing the cash flow statement and they don't realize it's there and kind of gets overlooked. Yeah, and I think, Suzanne, this is just another good reminder that it's important to look at the cash flow statement throughout the period. And I know mm -hmm. it's another topic we'll talk about a little mm -hmm. more later, yep. but the cash flow statement shouldn't always be an afterthought. Right. All right, so then, Suzanne, let's turn to another area where I know that you get a lot of questions and that would be on deferred costs. But mm -hmm. before you get into the questions, yeah. can you just remind our listeners what we're talking about when we refer to deferred costs. Yeah, so some of the questions we get on deferred costs, like some examples, would be upfront payments to customers in a revenue contract, maybe planned major maintenance, prepaid expenses, especially questions on the ones that cover multiple years, um, like prepaid rent in an operating lease, mm -hmm. or even questions are coming up now on the new cloud computing guidance. That guidance is just effective well, would be 2020 for public companies. So cost deferred under that as well is something we're seeing some questions on. Right, so then what types of issues do companies have with this, these costs? Yeah, so when cash is paid for these costs, so they're deferred on the balance sheet as long-term assets. So sometimes people will just automatically think, oh, they should be in investing cash flow. Because, yep, because it's long-term. Yeah, because it's a long-term asset, similar to what I do with PP&E or some other type of productive asset. But generally, in these cases, these costs, well, they're not considered PP&E and you don't generally consider them productive assets. So usually these payments don't belong in investing, but rather they should be classified in operating like other short-term prepayables, like prepaid insurance or something like that. Yeah, so Suzanne, it's interesting listening to you when you started, I was thinking, well, those do sound a bit like productive assets, but then if you sort of peel back the onion and look at the nature of the examples you gave, for example, major maintenance, payments to customers, even lease payments, all of those would flow through the operating section normally, and I guess mm -hmm. the question only comes up because you made these payments early. Right, and that's the point. We don't think the timing of when the payment was made should influence the cash flow statement in, in this area. Okay, great. So then let's move on to our next topic, and this is one that won't impact all of our listeners for this year end, but that impacts most companies at some point, and that mm -hmm. would be around business combinations. And business combinations can generate multiple types of cash flows, and questions often come up on how to classify those. So Suzanne, can you give us some of the highlights of what you should think about when dealing with a business combination? Yeah, sure. So we'll start with cash paid to the seller on the acquisition date. On the acquisition date, 
even though there will be a lot of changes in individual assets and liabilities on the balance sheet as a result of the BizComp accounting, the acquired business is thought about as one unit of account at the acquisition date. So those individual balance sheet line items won't be shown on the cash flow statement. So for example, AR would, might go up because you acquired AR. Well, you're not going to show that change in AR in operating. It's all just one line item cash paid, net of cash acquired and investing on the day of the acquisition date. Of course, ongoing after you know you put that AR on and you start collecting and whatnot, that flows through your operating because then it's your business. But just on day one, it's, it's just the one line item. Which I know can be very tricky if yeah. you're actually preparing the cash flow statement yeah. because you basically you have out. to strip out all of those changes that are due to putting the acquired business on your books. Right, on the acquisition. Yeah, yep. put it net into your investing and then the rest of it, to your point, after you've integrated it or at mm -hmm. least after you've purchased it, yep. all of those changes then would flow through whatever their, quote, normal categories mm -hmm. are. Yeah, exactly. And then just if you had any transaction costs on the date of the acquisition, those would be operating. And then if you have any non-cash transactions, which we'll talk non-cash a little bit later, but those should also be disclosed. Suzanne, I know we also get questions about amounts that are paid after the acquisition date, like contingent consideration. So how are those payments classified when paid? Are they still part of sort of the mm -hmm. investing umbrella? Yeah, well, it depends. It depends on when the timing of the payment is made and how it relates to the day one liability. So just to back up, on the acquisition date, the purchaser is going to record a liability for what they think they're going to pay in contingent consideration, and then they're going to remeasure it at fair value each period until the contingency is resolved. So they set some liability amount on the acquisition date. So when the payment is ultimately made to the seller, you think about timing and how the amount compares to the original liability. So if the payment's made within three months of the acquisition date, that's considered the payment being made soon after the acquisition date, the entire amount is investing, no matter what. But if it's made after three months, you, you look at the original liability. Say the original liability was, I don't know, a million dollars. If you paid $1.2 million, what you would do is the repayment of a million would be considered financing because you're repaying the original liability. And then the anything above that, so the 200000 in my example, would be operating. And this guidance was clarified a couple of years back by the FASB because there was some diversity in practice. Okay, so that. again, a good idea to, you're going to have to keep track of these amounts, mm -hmm. but I guess the thought on the financing is that effectively the seller is really giving you some financing yeah. mm -hmm. for the acquisition. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And then Suzanne, I know we also get questions about debt that's extinguished in conjunction with the business combination. Mm -hmm. And often the seller's debt will get extinguished by the purchaser. Mm -hmm. I know the timing sometimes can be before, after, simultaneous. Mm -hmm. So how do we think about that? Yeah, so the classification depends on if the acquirer legally assumes the debt or not. So if the acquirer legally assumes a debt, and that's the legal call to figure out, but if they do, then generally what the acquirer would do is record the debt at fair value on their balance sheet because basically the purchaser, well, they bought a business encumbered by this debt because they assumed it. And then any payment that they make on that assumed debt would be like they're paying their own debt. So it'd be a financing cash outflow because now the debt is you know, the legal obligation of the acquirer. If the acquirer does not legally assume the debt, but instead, you know, they just make a payment on the seller's debt as part of the acquisition, 
then that's just thought of as an investing outflow because you're not it was never your financing right it's just part of the consideration and instead of paying the seller you're just they pay just one of their debtors yeah. yes mm -hmm. okay that makes sense so then Suzanne some of the more complicated issues I know we deal with is whether we should impute cash flows on the face of the cash flow statement in situations where a company uses a third party to act as its behalf in a cash transactions and often I know in these transactions the cash may not even pass through the company's mm -hmm. bank account so when do you decide whether that should be included on the cash flow statement or presented as non-cash? Yeah, so this question actually comes up quite a bit. And I'd say, you know, generally we don't think companies should be imputing cash flows onto the face of the cash flow statement. But there is one situation where we do think it, it might be appropriate. So we, it's really in this situation that you bring up. So yeah, we do regularly see financial institutions or other entities kind of acting as agents on behalf of a company for settling a transaction in cash. So like you said, when this happens, there's no direct activity in the company's cash account because the agent's handling it. So it really is non-cash, right? So if one common example we might see is a company, say they go out and they buy inventory from a manufacturer and they finance the purchase of that inventory through a bank. So what they might do is ask the bank to send the check directly to the manufacturer. So the company never receives the cash in that case, it just goes right to the manufacturer. So the question in this example would be, should this be a non-cash financing transaction or should the company gross up its statement of cash flows to show a financing inflow for the money received from, from the bank and an operating cash outflow for the cash paid to the manufacturing? And we call this constructive receipt and disbursement. So like I said, typically we don't think non-cash transactions should be on the face, but in this case, many times it's appropriate. So it really judgment is needed, but we kind of have a rule of thumb to think about, right? So generally, if we have two separately negotiated cash transactions that happen at the same time, and as a matter of convenience, the company asks the one party to pay the cash directly to the other party, so they're kept out of the cash flows, we do think that separate presentation of these two transactions on the face of the cash flow statement makes sense. It just most appropriately reflects the substance of this transaction. Um, so back in my example, right, since the company was only kept out of the cash chain for convenience, they should show a financing inflow and an operating cash outflow. They could have just gotten the cash from the bank and turned around and sent their own check, but just for convenience, they didn't. So we don't think, you know, when someone's doing something for convenience, you shouldn't get to leave it off the cash flow statement. Because if they left this off the cash flow statement, they would not have operating outflows for that inventory purchase ever. Right. Because they financed it. And we don't think that makes sense in that case. So it's really kind of judgmental and you look at the transactions as they happen, but that's an example where we would think it made sense. Okay, I know this could get complicated and yeah. there's guidance on this in our FSP guide. Yeah. So uh -huh. definitely yeah. something, if you're dealing with these types of transactions, definitely encourage you to take a look at that. Mm -hmm. And then Suzanne, I know another area that Hopefully we're not getting too many questions yet, but it is a change this year because the new lease guidance yeah. it relates to presentation of some 
uh, lease items. So can you talk about those? Yeah, sure. So this is new, right, with the new leasing guidance that was effective, well, I guess that's last year now, 2019, yes. for public companies. There's now a requirement for companies to disclose certain operating non-cash transactions associated with leasing. So that's a new thing, because before it was always just investing and financing. So for operating leases, you would disclose any non-cash change, besides the change that's related to the single lease expense, you should disclose those as a non-cash transaction. So some, some examples would be, Changes related to new leases, like you put an operating lease liability on the books, disclose it. Terminations, modifications, or even when you remeasure a lease liability for any type of event, and it goes up, it goes down, you should disclose that too. So it's, I think it's just good just to mention that since it is new, so it doesn't someone doesn't overlook it. Yep, helpful reminder. And for our listeners that are interested in more on some of the new leasing guidance, I'm having Suzanne and Mark Jerusalem back in a couple of weeks to talk about more generally presentation and mm -hmm. disclosure issues related to the new lease statement. So more to come on that. So Suzanne, very helpful reminders today. I think though, before we wrap things up, I'd like to touch on some best practices on the cash flow statement. And specifically, you know, I kicked things off by mentioning the fact that this continues to be a hot area of restatement. Can you take a step back and talk about some of the reasons that we think that it is an area where we see a lot of restatements and then touch on some best practices? Sure, so just to the question of why are there so many restatements, um, unfortunately, the reasons vary quite a bit. Like, I can't point to one particular transaction that always gets restated. I wish I could, because then we could That'd be easy. fix it. <laughs> yes. Um, but one recurring theme I see in, in a lot of the restatements, or even areas where maybe it's not rising to the level of a restatement, but where I see an issue, is just that preparation of the statement of cash flows, it's often completed late in the reporting process. doesn't get as, maybe not as much attention as the P&L and the balance sheet. And so that in and of itself could kind of tend to lead to issues. Yeah, I think it's a great point. It's almost like our listeners need to turn off the podcast and turn directly to the statement of cash flows because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> things get more difficult the later they are in the process. Right, so it's always a good idea to kind of leave more time during the close process. Now I know that's tight and everything, but that would be time well spent if you could do that. But just another thing that will help is just keeping the cash flow statement top of mind throughout the quarter, so not just at the close. So if there's a significant transaction during the quarter, for example, I think oftentimes people involved in structuring the transaction and the financial reporting team, they do really think hard about the overall accounting treatment at the time the transaction occurs. Sometimes even before the transaction happens, they're talking about the accounting because it might even drive if they do the transaction right. or not. So there's a lot of attention focused on the accounting itself, but maybe not so much thinking about the cash flow classification in real time. They kind of leave that to the close process. And I kind of observe that because I do work with companies a lot on significant transactions. And we do talk a lot about the accounting, but I really don't get many cash flow statement questions until like the end of the quarter or actually after the quarter ends <laughs> before the close. Yeah, so you're I, starting to get busy now, I bet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just start to see, don't see many questions kind of throughout the quarter. They all kind of come at the end. Yeah, always so, an afterthought. Yeah, so, so the thing is, by the time the close comes along, you know, the person that's preparing the cash flow statement might not be as clear on the details of the transaction that they might need to make the appropriate 
um, cash flow classification, or you know, could even depending on how the the team is structured, could even be a different person doing the cash flow statement from the person that worked on the accounting, which could lead to issues in itself or lack of understanding. So just, I guess, just a key message, just kind of build cash flow statement into the ongoing process for each transaction when you're thinking about the accounting. I think it'll help and it'll make the close process go easier. Okay, so just a good reminder that it's always important to keep the cash flow statement top of mind when you're doing any transaction. Mm -hmm. And I think a related item that we've seen a lot is that often companies could be making changes and potentially people preparing the cash flow statement don't even realize that there's a potential impact. And that mm -hmm. can happen with cash management programs like structured payables or factoring receivables. And I know that that's something we've gotten questions about, mm -hmm. an area investors are focused on, and even the SEC has been focused on recently. So Suzanne, can you just take a step back and explain what these programs might mm -hmm. look like and then what companies should think about? Yeah, so it's important to kind of keep these cash management changes in mind during the quarter, and they are becoming increasingly popular, especially structured payables. So kind of a high-level summary, a structured payable would be when a company has a trade payable and they go out and try to extend the terms with a variety of parties. And they might do this to hold on to cash longer or take advantage of early payment discounts. It could go by a variety of names, supply chain financing, reverse factoring, vendor payable programs. It's just really important to look out for those programs because if you've changed the terms so much of that payable that it's essentially become debt, that's gonna impact your cash flow statement. It's gonna change how you classify those payments on the cash flow statement. So just important here that whenever a company enters into one of those programs, just to at least make sure that the person preparing the cash flow statement is aware so they can kind of think about the changes that were done and if it essentially has turned that payable into debt. All right, Suzanne, as always, very nice to have you in the studio. Some great reminders for companies as they're preparing their cash flow statement this busy season. So thank you very much. Sure. Tune in next week when we go beyond the financial statements to discuss the role of the audit committee. Paul Loop, PwC's governance leader, is going to talk about their typical responsibilities ranging from financial reporting to cyber risk and data privacy. So join me here again next week for this conversation. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our podcast series wherever you find your content. I'd also love to hear from you. So please reach out to me on LinkedIn with questions, suggestions, or just to follow me to stay up to date on the latest content. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.